For patients with advanced Dupuytren's disease, which causes severe joint contracture in the hands, surgery may be recommended to improve their range of motion. But another new non-surgical approach may soon be available. Who's affected by Dupuytren's contracture, and what are the advantages to each type of treatment? You are listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and joining us to discuss treatment approaches to Dupuytren's contracture is Dr. Lawrence Hurst, Professor and Chairman and Chief of the Division of Hand Surgery in the Department of Orthopedics at Stony Brook School of Medicine Health Sciences Center in Stony Brook, New York. Dr. Hurst, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, as a general internist, I think of Dupuytren's as being something that we see often in alcoholics or people with repetitive trauma. Is that an appropriate way to look at this disease entity? No, it isn't. First, the disease of Dupuytren's affects the palmar fascia of the hand. It is clearly more evident in men than females, and it clearly increases in incidence as the population that you're looking at gets older. There is data that suggests that the incidence is increased in those who uh, drink excessively, those who have seizures, those who have diabetes, those who smoke, and those subpopulations. But there is not a known cause and effect to that relationship. Those are simply observations made against populations as compared to the whole population. And is there any association with repetitive trauma to the area, or that's a misconception? That is a definite misconception. The relationship of Dupuytren's disease to trauma has been a debated topic that goes all the way back to the time of Dupuytren's himself in the mid-1800s. He was alleging that it was in the hand of his coachman because he was using the whip in that hand. It is now pretty much felt that Dupuytren's disease is not caused by heavy work or use of the hand or repetitive use of the hand. It is possibly triggered by a traumatic event, but probably that trigger only produces the disorder we see as Dupuytren's disease in patients who are already genetically predisposed to the disorder. An example of such a triggering event is the person who has no signs of Dupuytren's disease, has a Collie's fracture, and then after the treated fracture, they're asking, what are these lumps in my palm? And you palpate the palm and you start to feel the nodules of Dupuytren's disease, which seems to have been turned on, if you will, by the injury of the broken wrist. But it is not seen that if you work hard, you get it, and if you, you know, shuffle papers for a living, you don't get it. Very interesting. And I sometimes will see people with one or two nodules and they'll have a trigger finger mechanism. Is is that all on the same spectrum or is that a different process than the true Dupuytren's? Dupuytren's disease is a condition of the fascia of the hand, the so-called palmar aponeurosis. If you look at your own hand, the skin on the top is quite loose and pliable. The skin in the palm is well attached to the underlying structures so that when you grab an object, you're not scooting around on your own skin, so to speak. Those retention ligaments make up the aponeurosis. It is those ligaments which are under the skin, but superficial to the tendons, that becomes thickened, forms the nodules, and finally forms cords, which contract the fingers and make the disorder that we see clinically as Dupuytren's disease. The trigger finger is a disorder of the tendon. That problem is happening deep to the palmar aponeurosis and is not related to Dupuytren's disease. The only exception is that if you have a patient with a small nodule and they have an underlying trigger finger in their tendon mechanism and you mistakenly operate through the nodule without removing it, release the tendon problem, and then sew up the skin without addressing the sort of 
premature Dupuytren's disease, if you will, that injury to the Dupuytren's nodule may accelerate the Dupuytren's disease and make a contracture where there was only a nodule. So that's the relationship sort of between trigger fingers and Dupuytren's disease, but they're clearly separate. One, one is a tendon problem and one is a aponeurotic fascia problem. Very good. Thank you for clearing that up. Clinically, when patients develop this, do you see a, a range of limitation in activity and symptoms? You see a, a huge range. The first group of patients that comes is, I've developed a lump in my palm. It's not really bothering me, but do I have cancer? What is this, doctor? The second group is, I had a lump in my palm. Now I see there's a band out to my finger, and I can't straighten my finger very well and it's starting to interfere with my activities of daily living or my hobbies, such as I'm retired now, I have time to play golf, but I'm having difficulty opening my hand properly to get around the handle on the golf club or maybe the tennis racket handle. That's the next group, so to speak. Then there are people who, for whatever reason, have neglected their problem of Dupuytren's disease, and sometimes patients will present brought in from a nursing home where the fingernails are digging into the palm and they're having trouble with recurrent infections caused by a persistent contracture that was never dealt with at an earlier stage. And there are an occasional younger group of patients, often with patients we see with seizure disorders, where the disease, even when it's not neglected, is very aggressive and can produce hands that are so contracted that people have trouble doing even the most basic things with their hands. That group, fortunately, is a very small group. And in terms of treatment, are, are there different treatment options as we go forward as the disease progresses? Absolutely. The nodule, when it first presents, usually is a little sore, and the treatment for that is observation and help the patient understand what it is and have them not worry about the discomfort, which often goes away, and inform them that they may find that they never get a contracture that requires some other intervention and that they just need to follow along. The so-called tabletop test was invented by John Houston many years ago in Australia. His patients came from great distances from farms, etc., into the city to see him, and he simply taught the patient, okay, you have a nodule in your palm, it's just a lump. If you start to get a band out into your finger and your finger's being pulled toward your palm, I want you to put your hand down on the table. If you can put the finger and the palm on the same flat surface simultaneously and there's no air under your hand, then you don't have enough of a bend to be worried about. If the cord has pulled your finger into flexion, into your palm, such that you can no longer put your hand and palm and fingers simultaneously flat, then you have a so-called positive tabletop test come back from your farm and, and we'll, we'll do surgery for you, because in his era, that was really the only option. So there is that whole gamut of, of treatment culminating in a surgical kind of release Right. The first treatment, observation for a nodule. Secondly, okay, you have a contracture. You now have a positive tabletop test. You cannot extend your fingers. Now you're deciding, okay, how bad is this? And there's sort of two ways to look at this. One is you need to understand what the patient is concerned about. If they have a mild bend of the finger, but they can do everything in life they want to do, then they may not really need to be treated. And so you have to see what is the complaint and does it need addressing. So that's sort of one indication for intervention. The second is that as surgeons, we have used various numbers to indicate whether the contracture is severe enough that it probably should warrant a recommendation for surgical treatment. Those numbers are for the MP joint, which is the first joint in the finger, a 30-degree contracture or worse, 
then okay, surgery is warranted. And in the next joint, the proximal interphalangeal joint, some would say any contracture warrants surgical intervention. Some of us are now beginning to say a 20-degree contracture that doesn't progress doesn't need surgical treatment, but if it starts to progress, it's better to do it sooner than later. So those are numeric guidelines that we can measure with a goniometer as we're examining the patient and have a sense of, okay, we're kind of meeting the proper indications for a surgical recommendation. The reason for those numbers is that we have seen that when you get to 30 degrees in the MP joint or the beginnings of a contracture in the PIP joint, typically the contractures will now progress and get worse. And clearly, as the finger bends closer and closer to the palm and cannot be extended, it becomes a more difficult treatment problem. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me discussing treatment approaches to Dupuytren's contracture is Dr. Lawrence Hurst, Professor and Chairman and Chief of the Division of Hand Surgery at Stony Brook in New York. Dr. Hurst, recently in the New England Journal, there was a phase three study published using uh, collagenase to treat Dupuytren's contracture. Can you tell us a bit about this product, your role in the development of it, and, and how it's used? Yes, I can. Besides surgery, the only other treatment that has been shown to work is a needle apneurotomy where you use a needle as a knife to cut the cord. So both of those options are surgical. In the early 90s, we were introduced to a drug called collagenase and felt that this might be apropos to the treatment of Dupuytren's disease. The process, the research process has been going on then for 15 years and has culminated in a phase three double-blind study that has been published in the New England Journal recently. In this study, we had approximately 300 patients enrolled in the study. The patients were given either placebo or collagenase on a two-to-one ratio, so 200 patients were treated with drug and 200 received placebo. And then in a blinded fashion, the data was collected and then finally analyzed to see the results of using collagenase injections to correct the contractures of Dupuytren's disease. The endpoint that we set for ourselves was quite significant. We said the primary endpoint was to get the contracture reduced to zero to five degrees. In other words, a straight joint, basically. So in the study, overall, we produced 64% with a straight joint from injecting collagenase into the cord of the Dupuytren's disease. Understand that these injections are typically given on one day, and the next day, the patient is seen again. The hand is typically swollen, sometimes a little black and blue, and the collagenase, which has been put right into the cord of the contracture, has weakened the bonds between the collagen fibers, and you're able to then manipulate the finger and essentially break the cord and result in a straight finger. So it's uh, the treatment and then some mechanical manipulation the next day. Yes. Now, some patients would come in the next day, and then during the night, it ruptured on its own. Other patients, we would manipulate the finger and actually break the cord and get the finger relatively straight. Some patients, we'd find that it was too difficult to break the cord. We'd leave them alone. And over the next week, the cord would kind of stretch out and sometimes correct quite a bit on its own, so to speak, with therapy and splinting. And then there were some patients who didn't either didn't respond or only corrected partially. In the study, patients were allowed to get up to three injections in a cord that was contracting a particular joint. So I think we had about, on average, 1.5 injections to achieve the 64% sort of back to normal 
endpoint. I believe if you read the paper, I think about 80% of the patients got at least 50% better with the injection. Now that to me sounds very impressive, particularly if the treatments had very little morbidity to them. Were there a lot of side effects? In this study, which was a very well-designed study, we looked at all adverse events down to, you know, did you get an itching in your palm? And so almost everybody gets some swelling, some black and blue. In terms of serious side effects that caused any problem, there's only really been one, and that was a rupture of a flexor tendon. In the complete history of investigating this drug, we've now done over 1,000 patients and 2,700 injections. There have been three tendon ruptures. They all occurred in the fifth finger PIP joint, the second joint in the finger. And since we saw that and alerted the people who were in the investigator team, and advised injecting a bit more towards the palm in that digit, we haven't seen any more flexor tendon injuries. And Dr. Hurst, should this produce a suboptimal effect? Can one then go on and and still have a surgical procedure, or does this make surgery not a viable option? No. You could, for instance, I had one patient in not this particular study that's in the journal, but in a previous study where nothing happened. Mm -hmm. And so later I operated on the gentleman, and what I found was the cord was very, very thick, and the enzyme had basically eaten a little hole in the cord, but it wasn't, hadn't weakened it enough to allow the cord to break. And I did the standard surgical fasciectomy, and the patient was fine. So we've also seen in these studies many patients who had had surgery, had recurrent contracture and cord development, and we were able to treat them with the enzyme and rupture the cord that occurred after surgical treatment. And I think we will probably eventually see patients who develop recurrent cords after this treatment where we could probably use it again. You must understand that whether you use a surgical procedure where you essentially, you know, cut out a good portion of this pathological tissue or whether you use a needle through the skin to, as a knife to pop the cord in a sort of cutting manner or whether you use collagenase to weaken the, the bonds and break the cord, none of these three treatments can make this disease never come back. The recurrence in Dupatrons is always going to be a some percent. Well, I would like to very much thank my guest from Stony Brook School of Medicine in New York, Dr. Lawrence Hurst, who's been informing us about a new exciting treatment that should be available hopefully very soon for Dupatrins contractures. This therapy seems to provide some advantages over our current treatment options, which are mainly surgical. Thank you again very much, Dr. Hurst. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals, ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please also visit us at ReachMD.com, and now you can also find and follow us on both Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening.